Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, this is Whitney Lowe, and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. And we'd like to uh, thank Books of Discovery for sponsoring our podcast today. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission and bring the massage community enlivening content that advances our profession. They invite you to check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com. Thanks again so much for supporting the podcast. So I'm here today. Uh, Till is off this week, and I'm here with a wonderful friend of mine who's going to join us, Cal Cates. Uh, and Cal, welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and I want you to just take a brief moment to Share uh, a little bit with our audience who might not be as familiar with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, we're going to get into some fascinating discussions afterwards. Indeed, we always do. Um, we do, don't we? Yes. I'm. I'm. Uh, well, I'm honored to be here. Um, I love your show, and I think you guys tackle some uh, some important things. And as somebody who doesn't do a lot of technique work, even the technique uh, heavy episodes, I always find really interesting. And and I love the way you guys agree to disagree, and how you talk about how you just model what I think could make the world a better place. So well, that's good um, to know. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, so as Whitney said, my name is Cal Cates. I'm the executive director of an organization that's based in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, we're called Heal Well. And we, um, we do a lot of things, but basically what we do is um, we try to improve the um, quality of life for people who are affected by acute, chronic, and serious illness. And we specifically wrote our mission as people affected by these things because that really allows us to serve humans uh, because there's really not a person on this planet who isn't affected by acute, chronic, or serious illness, if not directly, then indirectly. So we provide advanced education for not only massage therapists, but other healthcare disciplines. We actually provide massage therapy directly as an integrated member of the team in a variety of hospitals throughout the Washington, D.C. area. And then we partner with those clinical folks to conduct research to demonstrate the efficacy of massage and and really the value of massage therapists as much as massage therapy. And that's a, that's a whole nother conversation, but that's, that's us in a nutshell. And I would like to just make a plug too for um, Heal Well has some wonderful resources through your uh, website. You've got a, a new discussion uh, or sort of community that you've established on Mighty Networks, right? That's over there. Um, yeah. yeah. So trying to bring, you're bringing together a lot of people from diverse um, backgrounds, not only practitioners, but uh, also you're trying to make outreach to other health professionals as well through your networks and things that there. Yeah, absolutely. We really want to bring people who want to, um, who honestly want to move into a space of discomfort with things that they uh, want to learn more about, like racism and bias and communication and ethics and equity, access, all these things that certainly affect healthcare more broadly. And, and we have massage therapists in the community, but as you said, we've got social workers and nurses and physicians and other people in there really just talking as people who care about people and want to care about people in a more mindful and engaged way. 
Yeah, wonderful. So if you're not familiar with that, I would certainly encourage you all to check that out, some wonderful stuff that's going on over there. So, well, today um, I had decided I wanted to try to, to dive into some sticky and messy discussions with you because I love doing this uh, when we get together and have a chance to, to chat about this. So I wanted to talk today some about um, advanced practice credentialing in the future of massage in the healthcare system. Um, and just a little bit of, of backstory on, on this um, and also to, to give some, some color to the, the relationship and discussions that we've had before, um, I wanted to share with everyone a little bit of, of my memory, sort of the backstory of becoming acquainted with you. Um, I don't know if you will remember this, and I cannot remember which actual event this was. And this was at some national convention or education conference um, a number of years ago. We were having some public discussion about a number of these particular issues. Um, and you stood up and were making some comments and I, and I didn't know you at that point and turned around and I thought to myself, I got to go meet this person because they really know what the hell they're talking about. So I made a point to go, uh, introduce myself and I've, um, loved having the opportunity to discuss some of this stuff with you since that point. So, um, I want to try to dive into it in a little more public forum and share some of those things today. So, um, one of the things I want to start with is, um, and, and you and I have talked about this some, uh, you know, my sort of frust some of my frustration over the years in looking at massage as being a part of the healthcare system is that I hear frequently from lots of people, we want to be part of the healthcare system. We want to be part of this process. But then when they learn about what is entailed with that, um, those things change a little bit. Like, oh, I don't want to have to do that or I don't want to have to do that. So I know you've had some kind of experiences and, and uh, you know, things like that, especially through your work at, at Healwell there. And I just wanted to see any thoughts that you wanted to share about, you know, what you've encountered with that particular challenge. Oh, it is such a it's such an interesting question because you know I think the the more that we do at Healwell educating and educating ourselves and then trying to share what's useful with people about unconscious bias, um, the more I understand how we we rarely come to any conversation without assumptions and without stories and um, those stories really inform our perspective on the world and when you say to someone do you, when you ask do you consider yourself a healthcare provider. We could ask 10 different people and the images that come up in their minds about what it means to be a healthcare provider will be 10 different things. And right. some of them may be based in reality. Some of them may be based in, you know, um, stereotypes and or maybe just their own negative or positive experiences with other types of providers. So I think part of the hurdle that we have to to clear in the massage profession is that we really have to get clear about what do we mean when we say be a healthcare provider. And we don't mean work in a hospital. We don't mean take insurance. We don't, it's not really about your, um, how you do your billing. It's not about your practice environment. It's actually about accountability to yourself and the people you serve. So you can be a person who sees clients in your basement while your kids are at school and still be a healthcare provider. And I think that's really hard for a lot of us to square because we we think healthcare provider means white coat, sterile environment. And, yeah. and I think it, it really means holding yourself to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, this is something I've often pondered about, that um, the fact that massage therapy doesn't really come from a traditional academic background, we come more from the sort of, uh, I don't know what you call the the guru disciple education model of information passed down from generation to generation more than a traditional 
academic model that would be in, you know, traditional university type uh, training programs that we see most other healthcare professionals. Do you think our lack of being in that um, academic preparation model in our schooling is part of what makes it unclear for a lot of people of where we fit, you know, our roles there? I do. I think that our profession really, um, it, it is in a hard spot and it puts itself in a harder spot because I think that we we are afraid to set a standard. We're afraid to set a standard that will exclude some people. And mm-hmm. uh, I understand that. The, the most human parts of me understand wanting to bring everyone along and the parts of me that know the risks we take when we don't elevate that level of accountability and education um, wants us to push in a direction of to to say that you are a massage therapist, you must know these things. You must understand your responsibility and be accountable to not only to the people that you serve, but to your fellow practitioners and to sort of society at large. And, you know, as we talk um, on our podcast, Massage Therapy Without Borders, which I feel like is a, is a great little, there's a, a good synergy. I feel like people who yes. like your show uh-huh. would connect with the things we talk about. And we talk with we often have guests from other countries talking about how they've sort of navigated the regulatory landscape. And so many of the people that we've spoken to from New Zealand, Australia, um, places in Europe, that they are they have developed some degree of a tiered system where you mm-hmm. have people who have a very high level of education. And I think this is I can already feel the bristle in some listeners. Right. That that's sort of what I'm saying is there's the smart yeah. people and the not smart people. And it's like, yeah. no, humans need touch. And I think that it should be possible for people with less education to provide a kind, safe touch to people who need that. And, mm-hmm. and that should be available possibly at a lower cost. I mean, that's another conversation. But if you have a chronic or serious health condition, you should be able to see someone who can touch you kindly and competently and work with your other providers and have a skill set that maybe that person who gives you a basic Swedish massage doesn't have. And that we we have to be willing to have a conversation that allows space for both of those types of services to exist, both of those engagements. Mm-hmm. and to do it in a way that if everybody got a Swedish massage once a week, the world would be a different place. Like it's not about this is more important because I have more education. It's just that it is safer perhaps and more effective for me to be able to direct a patient. If I'm a primary care physician and I want to send one of my patients who's having knee pain or back pain to a skilled practitioner, I want to send them to someone who's not just going to push hard where it hurts. You know, I yeah. want to know that that other practitioner has the kind of training to understand the medications that my patient is on or the surgeries that they've had and to be able to conduct a useful intake to create a, a session plan and a treatment plan that is more than the very valuable act of rubbing. Right. You know, uh, I've spoken about this in a previous episode of our podcast, and I, you and I have talked about this extensively, the fact that, you know, we do have this sort of split personality in our field of the one aspect of many individuals who view themselves working primarily within, for lack of a better term, sort of the personal care service uh, model, and the others that see themselves as working with health conditions. And uh, thinking that, well, you know, we do, a pre- I think, a pretty decent job of preparing people in their entry-level education for that first group, 
of people that are doing primarily sort of personal care service oriented work who are way deficient, in my opinion, in preparing people for being sort of a practicing healthcare professional. But we run into this problem, and I've heard you say this, I believe, on your podcast as well, by the way, and I just want to make another plug for the Massage Therapy Without Borders podcast for those of you who haven't listened to it. Uh, Cal was mentioning it's a wonderful show. I've heard you mention this. Okay, let's say you work at a franchise doing basic relaxation massage or you work at a spa. How do you know the person with a compromised health condition doesn't come in that you need to know something about because massage is not benign. It is capable of doing things um, adversely to people. Yeah. Yeah, we just had a, a a lengthy conversation in the community and also uh, privately on various channels with uh, Ruth Werner about blood clots and blood mm -hmm. clot risk and sort of assessment and how you know the human body is is on some level a sort of ticking time bomb for blood clots and that even yes. if you don't have a chronic health condition, there's a there's a chance that you could have a blood clot and how you know what's the line between being overreactive and just not caring. And, you know, when it comes down to the fact that a dislodged blood clot could kill a person, I tend to, you know, err on the side of caution because the possible risk is actually death in this case. And I, I do, this is where I always, I wrestle with this regularly, this conversation of, I want to make room for the single mom who massages people in the basement studio that she's created while her kids are at school. And the human body is actually pretty complex. And mm -hmm. I think that what happens is that people sort of, sort of uh, the public perceives massage therapists as talk therapists, mental health professionals, you know, aromatherapy experts, dietary people, and sort of they come to us no matter what environment they see us in expecting us to know about all kinds of things. And I think that you, uh, Amanda Basquill and Nikki Monk have done some uh, different research looking at how massage therapists perceive themselves. And the more training and experience therapists have, the less likely they are to creep out of their scope. And mm -hmm. I think that this yeah. is one of the things that really damages our profession is that people get excited about wanting to help people. And I think, you know, I want to be really clear that the intention is good, but the final product is people are receiving not so great advice They're, you know, the boundaries are not clear. And I think that overall, it kind of leaves people wondering like, so how, how could or would massage fit into healthcare? Cause you don't go to your doctor and ask about, you know, stretches usually. Um, but if you go to your massage therapist, I mean, I've had people ask me if they should keep taking their medication, all kinds of questions that I'm totally not qualified yeah. to answer, but it's only because I've had really great education and support in being able to say, I don't know, or that's out of my scope or to make a good referral. And those are the skills that I do on some level feel are non-negotiable for the practice mm -hmm. of massage therapy. Yeah. So we, you know, what I see is that we end up in this dilemma of, we feel like we need to have some additional specific, really higher standard training levels to do some of these types of things. And we have a number of uh, individuals who say, you know, they, you know, I've even heard this argument from some of the, the national associations. They don't want to put a barrier to people's being able to work by making the educational hurdles too high. Yeah. Um, and I understand that. Yeah. You want to make things affordable and a vocational training program for people to get into. But again, we run into this dilemma of 
what are they actually going to be doing? We're not just um, repairing air conditioners here. We're doing some things that have some you know, potential um, health complications for people somewhere down the line. And I think that has led us in the direction of trying to seek out some type of alternative credentialing that would indicate um, additional training if we're not going to be able to crack the neck of the egg of, of maybe, you know, beefing up entry-level training to that standard. And there've been a lot of efforts to do that before that have been strongly resisted by a big swath of the profession. And that seems to be difficult. And so it kind of, kind of feels like to some degree, well, if, if that's really not going to be able to get as much support, maybe we do this through some other type of credentialing mechanisms. And this is some of the stuff you and I've talked a lot about before. Um, and I just want to call back our attention for a moment to something that you mentioned with the recent podcast that you did with Ann Davey, who was the CEO of Massage and Myotherapy Australia. Interestingly, talking about the fact that there wasn't regulation in the individual provinces in Australia, yet they've done a pretty significant job in structuring tiered credentialing processes for being able to access different aspects of the healthcare process. And that seems like an interesting model. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting too because you know when we were talking with Anne, we I I noted that I feel like one of the things that actually holds us back is that there is already kind of a weird hodgepodge of regulatory intervention, and mm. and that you know Anne said that they really they were inspired by the lack of government oversight or intervention, and they really kind of wanted to get ahead of it so that when and if the government or massage therapy shows up on the government's radar, they can say, we've already created this standard, you know, mm -hmm. and the government goes, great, that's already established. We can sort of run with this. But I feel like we have such a difference between the states. And certainly every one of our, of our overseas guests is quick to point out how huge we are, you know, yeah. population wise, number of sort of territories, provinces, whatever, like, you know, Canada, they've all, they've only got, you know, they've got 15, I think, total provinces and territories and, and Australia of even less than that. And you certainly have less population. So, and you have different, you have a different sense in the people who live there. <laughs> yeah. That, just throw in a little bit of the uh, rugged individualism, we love to call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the rugged yeah. resistance to. Uh, yeah, rugged resistance. Being... Yeah. yeah. Well, and I uh, and I do think that it, when we look at massage compared to other healthcare professions, I I I don't know for sure. I know this only anecdotally from working in hospitals and working in integrated environments that massage therapy has this weird. Um, certainly, in the last handful of years, the demographic has shifted a bit, but people typically come to massage as a second or third career. Like they're done with the rules. They're done with the the stuff that they did in their other jobs and they are mm -hmm. choosing massage because they don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. They don't want yeah. more education. Uh, so yeah. What, what do we do? Do we really, what would it look like to create two ways or three ways of practice that could be clear to consumers? Because I think, you know, the, the, in British Columbia, they've got the registered massage therapist, the RMT, and then everybody else. And, if you have a health condition, you know that you're going to be better off going to an RMT. And if you want a relaxation massage, you might still want to go to an RMT, but you could get a decent session from someone who is not an RMT. And the agencies in that province have done a great job of educating the public about this is what's available and this is what you can expect from these two types of practitioners. And I think, you know, when we look at 
some of the attempts in our profession at advanced credentialing, let's say, it hasn't, that kind of follow through hasn't happened. So as a basic consumer, I'm pretty sure that if we surveyed consumers of massage therapy in the U.S., a very small percentage of them would be aware that there's an advanced certificate for yeah. insert any one of the things that NCB offers an advanced certificate for. And so right. yeah. how do we, how do we square that? Yeah. So I also want to come back to something you mentioned just a moment ago and, and ask your take on this because um, you've worked in a number of more traditional type of healthcare environments and um you know, there's uh, there's a lot of instances in those types of environments where you were working with people with some pretty compromised health conditions, where you could see massage potentially having some adverse effects. And I've often heard the argument from a lot of people: well, if you look at the statistics, there's not that many problems with what happens with massage. And I've always said, you know, to me, there's a little bit of a disconnect there because when I was doing a lot of clinical practice and working a lot more in the orthopedics for realm. I got a lot of clients coming to me telling me that they've been hurt by other people. Yeah. And I, you know, I've often said, well, so if a massage therapist has an adverse um, uh, incident occurring, where does that person go to tell somebody about it? Like, there might be a reason we don't hear about those kind of things very often. And one of the things is, I don't think we have a very, we don't have much of a reporting mechanism at all. Uh, and I'm curious about your take on that. I mean, do you do you sense that also as an underreported phenomenon of the potential potential problems that might happen from adverse um, events with massage. Yeah, I think this is really a multi-layered problem. Certainly the the lack of reporting structure. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't have any idea. As a person in the profession, I don't know where a client would report that they had been injured or, or that they had had some sort of adverse effect. I think the other piece is that consumers are not, I mean, even people who have gotten a lot of massage, let's say, their expectations of massage are not the most educated. So if you are limping for two days after a massage, a lot of consumers, I think, would say, oh, I got a great massage yesterday. You know, they really worked me over. And it's like, no, you got injured. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you didn't have a blood clot dislodged or you didn't, you know, like get a contusion. But like, you shouldn't be walking in pain for two days after you get a session. And so I yeah. think some of the adverse effects that possibly are related to massage don't get connected in the client's mind as an adverse effect where, you know, if you have a surgery and your scar doesn't heal or, you know, you go to PT and suddenly now you have lots of swelling and pain, you can go straight back and say, you know, they stretched me too hard or the stitches came out or whatever it is. But if you're sore the next day, if you come to me and you have an undiagnosed blood clot and then you throw a blood clot a day later, nobody's going to say, oh, I bet it's because they got a massage. So mm -hmm. I think the lack of reporting structure and the lack of education overall um, allows us to believe that there's no danger here. Yeah. When there may, in fact, be some that we just don't have a way to know about. Exactly. Yeah. So, and again, statistically, that's hard, that's hard to point a finger to, to, to give a rationale and a reason for why we need greater standards in both the licensing level and also, you know, above the licensing level. Because, Absolutely. you know, we do have licensing in most states in the United States for primarily the purpose of protecting the public, but it's pretty basic in terms of the education level of what we're asking people to be able to know how to do. Yeah. So, you know, when we, we look at that whole process of, it, it seems like, I mean, after having watched attempts to see this occur, 
a number of different times through beefing up education levels um, in our uh, in our profession. You know, it often turns into this sort of um, uh, educational uh, educational content inflation. Yeah. Like, okay, let's add more hours. Let's add another two hundred hours. Let's add another four hundred hours to the requirements without any kind of real consideration about what does that actually mean or what are those hours about? And uh, so I, I wonder, you know, and I, this is where I've begun to, to be putting more attention in the last maybe decade or so, is maybe the solution is not going to live at beefing up our entry-level training, but might live somewhere past that point in the world of micro-credentialing. And for those unfamiliar with that term, that just means smaller level credentials than things like uh, university degrees or large scale training and certification programs, maybe, you know, smaller scale training. So what are your thoughts about that as a, you know, it sounded kind of like what they'd been doing in Australia was more along those kinds of lines. I mean, do you think that's something that would fly here in the, in the States? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, I think the question is, is the, what does it mean for something to fly? You know, I, I look at the structures that we have in place now and I feel like in, in a very backward way, the market kind of drives our credentialing. And, you know, we know what the credential, I feel like you and I and some of the folks that we talk with when we nerd out about this topic, we know what we need to set the bar, like where we need to set the bar. But if I'm a big agency and I'm trying to fund my operations, I'm, I'm possibly more interested in what will pay my bills. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to create a hard credential that people won't pursue because I need yeah. them to pay for a credential. So I do think that possibly um, the future really does lie in smaller groups and organizations coming together and saying, you know, come study with us. What you'll, what you will learn will benefit you and the people that you serve. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it probably will make you more money. It will make you more successful in your practice, but that it's honestly going to be a self-selecting group of people who for their own intrinsic development want to pursue an advanced level of practice. Because I, I think that the, the market people want rubs mm -hmm. and, and they will pay as little as possible to get those rubs. But yeah. I, I think over time, consumers will start to see that there are different levels of practice and that depending on what your needs are, you need to seek out people who, who do have advanced training. And, and I think as you and I have talked about a lot of times, I feel like when we talk about advanced training, it's so often a conversation of technique. And I do think that there is a lot lacking in, in a majority of massage education and that you know yeah. even when i just think what i've learned about fascia in the last five years like we didn't even talk about fascia in massage school 15 years ago and now i don't know how i would touch a body without considering the, mm -hmm. the importance of fascia and so i do think that there are sort of new scientific discoveries and things that that we do need to learn in a in an advanced practice um you know as we think about advanced practice but I, I honestly feel like advanced practice is about self-awareness, communication, creating meaningful safety and boundaries, things that really have nothing to do with the tools of your discipline, like your hands or your table or your, you know, whatever, that it really is about how you understand your, your relationship with the people you serve and what you can do to really create a therapeutic environment. Yeah, and that's certainly been one of my frustrations as a CE provider for several decades of this um, 
sort of, you know, blind focus uh, or obsession that everybody has with doing something new and different with their hands. Okay, well, like when I move them at a 45 degree angle instead of a 40 degree angle, and then I'm going to trademark this technique and make it, you know, uh, and as if that, you know, that is the really the thing that marks greater or better education. And one of the problems, uh, you know, I've lamented this with a, with a number of other other colleagues. Is that I, you know, I think one of the most really important things about training people to work as healthcare professionals is developing critical thinking and clinical reasoning. Yeah. And that is probably one of the most unsexy things to try to sell as a CE course. And like everybody's like, uh, yeah, but what am I going to learn how to do with my hands? Um, what new technique am I going to be able to put on my business card sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. No, well, and I think I think we also are very wrongheaded about this as people in that sort of what I envision as advanced practice and as, uh, you know, at Healwell, we're working right now creating an advanced practice program for uh, an interdisciplinary program. So the content would apply to nurses, social workers, psychologists, chaplains, anyone in a healthcare setting, including massage therapists, but that, you know, this is actually going to improve your life. It's going to bring more ease to your relationships, to your inner environment, to, you know, as we learn about, because critical thinking, I feel like, again, this is a place where the more we learn about unconscious bias and sort of how our brains work and the neuroscience of how we interact with our world, the more of an uphill battle, it seems, to truly teach critical thinking, because we we make assumptions and we make our critical judgments based on assumptions we're unaware of. And mm -hmm. I feel like we have to completely retool how we look at even teaching critical thinking and decision making because we have to make the invisible visible. We have to help humans understand how little control they actually have over their brains and how they work. And, yeah. You know, unteaching has to kind of be the basis of this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And then we kind of get back to some of those big problems of talking about, well, this all goes back to a lot of what's happening at entry-level education. And this is, you know, part of uh, the things that I s saw sort of occurring with the humongous explosion of massage schools that started around the late 90s and continued through the early 2000s to the mid, mid part of the teens. Um, that explosion of schools meant that there was a very large percentage of those schools who had faculty in there that didn't really have that good of a training. And many of those people were just put in, in teaching positions to fill a seat. Yeah. Um, and that has very significant adverse ramifications on the professionals or the, the individuals who came through many of those training programs for years. And consequently then have exposure to the public who go and have sessions with these people and they're like, this massage thing's not that great. And, you know, unfortunately it's because, well, their training wasn't that great. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to rectify that. Although it does seem like we're seeing some unfortunate and challenging economics causing the closing down of a lot of schools and training programs, which we really needed to have. Um, unfortunately, you know, part of the, the trend that seems to occur is that not always is it the worst schools that are hit the hardest Absolutely. economically. You know, many of them that were housed within large corporate institutions can weather the storm where the small mom and pop school that was doing a really good job of training people can't make it. Um, and I'm scared about that in terms of how that may impact our training for the future. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I do wonder, I mean, I, I feel like this is very much an art. And I, I don't think that that is unique to us. I mean, again, I think um, if you talk to the sort of most 
connected and present nurses or physicians, they'll tell you that um, we actually, we have a, one of our course offerings on our online platform is a six part thing about pediatric massage in the hospital or clinical setting. And part of that, we interview one of the oncologists that we work with. And we kind of, we asked her to tell us like, describe your average day. And so she talked all about her day and, you know, there was very little stethoscoping and very little, like sort of what you imagine. And I said, so it sounds like communication is a really big part of your job. And she was like, oh, 90% of what I do is about, like, I didn't learn it in, in medical school. It's mm -hmm. really about talking to people, listening to what people are really saying, listening to what they're not saying, and being able to really meet this person in a place that your interaction is beneficial, really for both of you. But um, yeah, I think we just, we're so, and I mean, at Healwell, we are great big nerds. We are huge fans of the science and anytime something new and factual comes out, we gobble it up and yeah. we love all of the stuff that you can't really put your fingers on and that the only way to sort of become comfortable with it is to sit in your discomfort so regularly that it becomes the place where you sit and, and it makes sense to you. Yeah. So I'm curious about your take on this too, having again worked in a lot of different uh, capacities within our sort of traditional healthcare system. I hear this statement or argument a lot of times, oftentimes it's from other healthcare professionals saying, you all as a profession aren't going to be really taken seriously by anybody until you have degree programs for your training. Um, and, you know, that is part of this dilemma that we talked about earlier. I mean, do you think that, uh, what is your, are your thoughts about that in terms of is there a pathway or a possible pathway for us that may not travel through the traditional academic degree programs? Or is that something, is that a direction that needs to occur eventually in the future? I think I would say yes. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that um, we have to also be aware of ways in which people learn. And, and I do fear that some of the people that I know personally, who are some of the most incredible therapists, wouldn't do well in a community college or or like a two or a four year program. And that the world would miss the opportunity to receive work from this person who is competent and maybe is quite possessive of the many skills that we just talked about that, that go into advanced practice. But um, I think that if massage therapy becomes something that you have to quote, go to college for, I think we'll lose some people that we currently, that we are able to include in the models that we have. And yeah, yeah, I think that um, I'd love to just see both of those things exist because I think there's yeah. value in both. I saw an interesting short little YouTube video, maybe a month, a month and a half ago or something like that, which was uh, with an uh, interview with a professor from, I think he was from NYU named Scott Galloway. And it was on Christian Amanpour's um, show called Amanpour and Company. Um, uh -huh. And he was talking about what he saw as the potential bursting of the higher education bubble that is on the horizon. Um, and he's talking about both a number of aspects of financial um, challenge, which is that, you know, tuition costs in traditional universities have risen much faster than healthcare costs over the last 30 years. And yeah. we are at a point where it is becoming unsustainable. And a lot of people are starting to ask, is the return on investment of me having to pay for a, you know, $60,000 undergraduate degree 
going to be worth it somewhere down the road. And then I'm going to have to go get another $50,000 master's degree or whatever it is on top of that and end up with, you know, $150,000 in student loans when I start my career is that there's going to become a point at which in many um, professions that those, the economics doesn't add up. And COVID has just accelerated that process because what's happened is a lot of these kids are at home in their universities and their parents who are paying the tens of thousands of dollars for tuition are watching them sit there, take Zoom classes on the web and saying, this is what I'm paying $50,000 a year for. Um, yeah. Where's the value here? Um, yeah. And the, the, the schools are saying, no, we're not giving you a tuition discount for having to sit at home and do Zoom classes. It's going to cost the same amount that would if you were here. Yeah. And I think just it was a fascinating discussion um, about a number of different facets of things that are, have been percolating on the horizon that I think personally, I mean, I have a lot of sort of more pointed opinions about this, that higher education has been able to really get away with a lot for a long time. And I think it's going to come time to pay the piper sometime soon. Um, and that makes me wonder about, should we be aggressively pursuing trying to get into that system if there are a whole lot of these impending problems coming down the pike with those traditional structured degree programs? Or, and this is what makes me think more along the lines of pursuing micro-credentialing as a more possible valid uh, path for us. Yeah. Well, I, yes, everything you just said, I can, I can absolutely see that. And it, and it plays into <laughs> my, my increasingly um, frequent post-apocalyptic um, fantasies of sort of, you know, that I, I do feel like so much has happened this year that has really, if we're willing, shown us everything we're doing wrong and, mm. and everything we're doing that as, as people on a planet is not sustainable and I think higher education falls into that category for sure, that it is it is a structure that is too big for itself at this point. And I, you know, I think yeah. all my, my <laughs> friends here in the Washington, D.C. area who work for these giant corporations that have spent, you know, their last 10, 15, 30 years driving back and forth to these great big businesses. And and they're saying, you know, like. I'm getting so much more done working at home. And I love that I don't yeah. trade an hour and a half of my life every day to get to and from work. And that, you know, I think when we, what we need, well, what we need now, but certainly what we'll need in the future are people who can do things in the world. And as a, you know, I have a bachelor's degree and the stuff that I learned in college, I didn't learn in class. You know, I learned how to be around people. I learned how to organize. Mm -hmm. I learned how to, you know, inspire and ask questions. And some of that happened as a result of my coursework, but more of it happened from being in the world. And yeah, I do think that we have to, um, we had a, a gentleman on our show a few uh, months ago now who we were talking with him. He's a First Nations uh, fella up in Canada. And we were talking about what his dream would be for cultural competency education. And he said, oh, well, my dream will never happen because nobody will pay for this. But people would have to, I would want massage therapists to go into a First Nations community, like not for a field trip for three hours, but for this semester, all of your clients are going to be First Nations people who live cool. in this community, yeah. right? And so, uh -huh. and I think that's true that <clears throat> we, we do these sort of samples of things, mm -hmm. but we never really have to touch the world in this way that will allow us to create the kind of change that inspires so much of us to do this work in the first place. And yeah. I, I think that the way that higher education 
has been designed almost by design prevents that kind of discomfort and the breaking down of barriers that will ultimately lead to all of us moving forward in a different way. Yeah. So one more thing I wanted to, to touch on here, um, and this is, uh, again, potentially opening up a huge can of worms, so we may not, <laughs> we'll just get to, we'll get to dip a spoon into the worm can for a moment. But uh, again, you and I have, have talked about this extensively, uh, that trying to get our national associations to lead on these types of things has really felt like pulling a freight train up a hill yeah. numerous times. I'm on something like third or fourth uh, efforts of, you know, trying to work on some type of advanced credentialing processes. And I'm curious, I mean, what what do you think we're doing wrong as trying as a profession, trying to get our associations to lead us? And maybe should we not get them to lead us? And should we try to do other things ourselves more as smaller groups or smaller individuals? Because there is an inherent, um, and you, you called attention to this earlier, there can be an inherent conflict of interest if an organization wants to keep as many members or keep as many people, you know, getting their particular credential or, or training program. And then you create one that is more exclusive, that doesn't um, have as big a population. The economics around that are certainly not as desirable, but um, it feels like the profession really needs it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, well, I think one of the things we're doing wrong is something that we've done wrong throughout human history. And, and I, it, it does in my, in my less, uh, optimistic moments. I feel like it's just going to happen again here. But, you know, I recently wrote a blog about how we don't, we have all through history seen opportunities to see the writing on the wall that we have blatantly ignored. And, you know, one of the examples I used was the coal mining industry. Like, mm -hmm. I know that it's been a way of life and that it's really important to people and that there are legacies in families that people have been coal miners and coal is a finite resource. You know, the same with oil. We're seeing the discussion now about, you know, if Biden, if the election gets certified and Biden becomes the president, oil will begin to transition out with sort of how he had said it in, in various outlets. And oil will not last. We need mm -hmm. to prepare for something better. And I think that this, we have the same thing with, with the profession is that we have a great big organization that has to fund an infrastructure and pay people to do the jobs within it. And it makes it really hard with our brains wired the way they are to really decide what's best for the profession and how to make that happen. And, yeah. and that is definitely something I think that points toward micro-credentialing as, as perhaps a better way forward, because you can have smaller organizations that can scale thoughtfully. And I mean, smaller organizations scale, they create a great program that suddenly two years later, they now have 50 people on staff and you go, oh man okay, we have to keep this going because we have all these people on the payroll. But I think this comes down again to communication. And, you know, Healwell, we're still relatively small, but every time we grow or add a program or do something, we really do kind of say, is this what we want to do? Does this make sense? Are you willing? I mean, with COVID, we had to back in September say like, so to stay alive through the COVID, we're going to have to cut salaries. Here's what that's going to look like. I will 100% get it if you need to do something else. But mm -hmm. here's where we're headed. Here's what this cut will allow us to do. And here's the plan forward. And everybody gets to say, yeah, you know, this is a good time for me to roll off. Or no, I'm in. But mm -hmm. I think 
that leaders think, oh, we have all these people who are counting on us. They are. They're counting on you to be honest. They're counting yeah. on you to say, this is what I see from my place on top of the horse at the top of the hill, stuff that you can't see. So what do you think, given that information and let people make choices? But we don't, that's just not how we operate. Yeah. Yeah. And so we continue to pull the freight train up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> or, or we don't. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, I yeah. mean, you know, and, and maybe you'll have to edit this out, but we, when, when board certification became a thing, as people practicing in the hospital, our organization said, we need to make sure that everyone who works for us is board certified. And this is a new program. It's not going to succeed if we don't support it. And mm -hmm. we supported it for four years and it, it didn't matter. It cost money. And we had people we wanted to hire who didn't want to get it. And, mm -hmm. and NCB still, their line is that this is the highest voluntary credential in the country. And they'll say that the, it, well, one of the reasons it's important is because you can say you're board certified. And when you're in a hospital setting or a clinical setting, board certification is language that people in that environment understand. And we went to one of the hospitals where we work and we said, listen, we're not going to make sure that our therapists are board certified anymore. Like, is who do we have to talk to? How do we remove this from our, um, you know, recredentialing packet? And they were willing to let us do that. But the doctor who was the head of the committee said, you are so lucky. All of our doctors wish that they could not be board certified too, because it's just a racket. They pay uh -huh. money and they don't get anything. But as a yeah. patient, you feel like, oh, you wouldn't want to go to a person who's not board certified. But board certification for a physician doesn't actually mean this person is competent. It means yeah. they had the money for annual dues and they submitted some level of CE. And yeah. I think that that's where we are with our board certification here is that you just it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is more competent um, or safer or, you know, accountable. Exactly. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, again, this is probably a whole nother can of worms for another day, but there, there, in my opinion, really needs to be a much stronger correlation between the credential and the educational program that gets the person to that credential. And that's something that board certification programs don't do well because the nature of a certification program means that there's multiple paths that a person can get to and may be able to just do okay in passing the test, but not really have the good comprehensive education program. And that's what you want the credential to designate is like, okay, you went through this training program and you really did get all this stuff. You met these competencies and you are at this level of skill and, and ability that we really want to, to see. So yeah, that, that is an inherent flaw in the models, I think, of those types of large-scale certification programs. Yeah. Well, and, and I uh, think we have to be willing to recognize the value of interdisciplinary education and honestly, to recognize the yeah. imperative of it, especially mm -hmm. as a profession that has not been traditionally recognized as healthcare. We need to be able, if I go take a class at a nursing school, that should count toward an advanced credential in my discipline as long as it's, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to go learn, you know, about the chemistry of medications. But if I go and take a nursing course in charting or a nursing course in ethics, or, you know, if I go to a physical therapy program and take an anatomy review course, that should all count as me beefing up my credentials and my competency. And the way that it sits now, at least it can count, but you got to jump through a lot of hoops for it to count. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. You know, it's not worth it because you've already spent the money and you've already gotten training that doesn't count as other types of CE. So, 
um, yeah, I think it, it's really not designed to support people coming in through multiple avenues. And as you say, that yeah. is a, I think that's a really important part of it. So in a nutshell, we still have some work ahead of us to do. Um, and, but I, for one, am forever grateful and thankful that there are people like you out there working on this and, and uh, holding, holding the light and shining a, a pathway forward for us. So I thank you for all the work that you're doing uh, over there with HealWell and in, in your life and, and everything as well. So can you uh, just recreate um, or just uh, repeat real quickly for folks how they can find out more about HealWell again, uh, just your contact uh, information oh, there? Absolutely. So uh, you can find our website at healwell.org. And uh, Whitney mentioned our uh, private community. You can uh, join. It's community.healwell.org. And uh, there's a, a phone, smartphone app, as well as a desktop interface with Mighty Networks, depending on what you, uh, how you want to work that. And um, it is a subscription-based platform, so you can try it out for a month, or you can decide to dive in for a year. Uh, but it's content that you might not find other places, and it's certainly conversations with a variety of providers and perspectives that you won't find other places. And the more thoughtful, self-aware folks who join the community, the more we all learn, and the more we all move forward together. So... Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate your indulging me. It just um, you know, got you on here just to give me another excuse to be able to have more great conversations with <laughs> you know, again, you know. uh, as, which I always enjoy. So okay. thank you again so much for that. We would also like to say thank you to Handspring Publishing for sponsoring the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help their patients achieve wellness. Handspring also has a new instructional webinar series called Moved to Learn, which is a regular series of 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors, including a recent one from Till over there. So uh, take a look at that and head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. Be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. So thanks again, Handspring. We'd also uh, just like to say thanks again to Cal once again for joining me here today. And we appreciate uh, our sponsors uh, supporting the podcast. And of course, all of you listeners, we really appreciate your continual um, supporting of the podcast. You can stop by our sites for show notes, uh, transcripts, and any of the extras. You can find that uh, on my site over at academyofclinicalmassage.com and also over on Till's site at advanced-trainings.com. Please uh, do feel free to send us questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about. You can send email to us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Please do, if you will, follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Portable Walkman, whatever it is you're listening to these days. Tell a friend and share the good news and everybody uh, keep doing what you're doing. And we, want, we look forward to seeing you again in two weeks. So thanks again, Cal. We'll talk again soon.